Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 13 The Association for Centrifuge Enrichment, ACE Early in 1973, the invitation came for Australia to join the Association for Centrifuge Enrichment, ACE for short, which was to meet soon in England. At that stage, the three members of the tripartite had been working individually and alone for some years in secrecy on the development of centrifuge enrichment technology, but had decided to pool their resources and to use the best features of the national machines to develop the future commercial models. They had set up the company Centec to do this, and the second company, Urenco, to build and operate the enrichment plants. The new minister responsible for the AAEC and for uranium was Mr RFX Rex Connor, the member for Wollongong, and his initial reaction was that this was for industry, not for government. The AAEC had recommended to the minister that it should handle the matter, but he decided not. We were never given a reason for this, but we assumed that the minister's advisers in Canberra had so recommended. So the formative meeting of ACE, held in London in May 1973, was attended by an engineer from the London office of BHP. However, Rex Connor changed his mind and when the first working meeting of ACE was called for 1st June 1973, I received 24 hours notice to go to London to attend. The BHP company was excluded and was definitely not amused. I was accompanied at the meeting by our man in London, the atomic energy advisor Bill Causey. Bill was later to have a major role in the working group of ACE. The member countries of ACE were France, Canada, Japan, Belgium, the Netherlands, UK, Sweden, Spain, Italy and Australia. The study took the form of a design cost evaluation of a medium-sized enrichment plant based on Urenco Centec technology. There was little release of hard information on the centrifuges themselves, and the whole study was based on assumed data, but with the assurances of the companies that the figures could be met in practice. The Australians certainly had the lead role in asking questions, because we had an active research program of our own in the field and the main task of writing up the work towards the end of the study fell to Bill Causey. We were impressed with what we learned, and we knew it to be realistic because of the results of our own work, which we did not divulge because of their potential commercial value. In fact, we did not send any of our own centrifuge enrichment project division staff to ACE meetings, feeling that the expertise of their detailed questioning could reveal the state of our development and ACE discussions were not really highly technical. Meetings of the board of ACE took place every three months at Eton on the Thames, in a building rented for the duration of the study. The board was taken on several occasions to visit Urenco pilot plants, at Capenhurst in Cheshire and at Almelo in Holland. There were no surprises for me in the UK pilot plant at Capenhurst or the German one at Almelo and in both, the centrifuges looked similar to ours, but the Dutch plant at Almelo was a big surprise because the machines were so tall. I was standing with the Japanese member of the ACE board, Dr. Imai, when I saw them, and I noted that he was as surprised as I was, which was significant. 
The performance of the gas centrifuge improves markedly as the rotational speed increases, theoretically as the fourth power of the peripheral velocity. But another way to improve it is to increase the length to diameter ratio of the rotor. This presents difficulties in practice because long rotors have lower critical speeds of destructive vibration. It was clear that the Dutch had concentrated on this aspect of machine development, whereas the UK and Germany had gone for higher speeds. This indicated to us some of the potential advantages to the tripartite of the sharing of technology. During the ACE study, it was quite clear that the members most interested in the Sentec Urenco technology were Japan and Australia, and that the companies were aware of this. I often found myself placed alongside Dr. Imai from Japan, and we had long discussions on the prospects of the small centrifuge, without at any time getting into the details of what we were doing ourselves, each being aware that the other had the backing of an active research program in the technology. The ACE study was completed and the association disbanded in September 1974. It was left to individual members to take the matter further if they so chose. From the Australian viewpoint, the study was a success. For although we did not learn much about the technical details of Urenco technology, we did learn of the success to date and their plans for future commercial plants. The obvious confidence of the partners in the tripartite about their commercial future was a valuable pointer to the prospects for the centrifuge method of enrichment, and therefore gave us encouragement to proceed with our own development of the technology. We also foresaw future advantages in some sort of combined enterprise with the tripartite, including marketing arrangements. Urenco began building the first two commercial plants at Capenhurst in the UK, and Almelo in Holland in September 1977. However, before the next development in the uranium enrichment saga in Australia occurred, there was another major change in government uranium policy, which caused the AAEC a great deal of work and expense, again all to little avail in the long term. This was announced by the Minister, Mr R. F. X. Connor, on the 31st October 1974. End of chapter 13. Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family. Chapter 14. The AAEC in the Uranium Industry What the government had decided, without any consultation with the AAEC, as far as I have been able to discover, was that the Commission was to participate in the mining, treatment and sale of all uranium in the Northern Territory. It would be a partner in the Ranger Uranium Mine and eventually in other mining companies when appropriate. And the AAEC would be the only exporter in the Northern Territory searching for further uranium deposits. Accordingly, in June 1975, the Minister formally directed the AAEC to undertake exploration for uranium in the Northern Territory. He also made the Commission responsible for sales of uranium from all sources in Australia. Mr Connor had great plans for the future of the uranium industry in Australia. In addition to the roles of the AAEC in exploration, mining and treatment and sales, 
he foresaw a bright future for further processing of uranium in Australia, and in particular for the uranium enrichment industry. However, at the beginning, early in 1973, he appeared uncertain on how to implement his grand plans. The situation was exacerbated by the poor relationship which developed between the AAEC and the Minister's Department, the Department of Minerals and Energy, from that time on during the period of the Labor government. To put it bluntly, the Minister and his senior officers appeared to see no need for advice from AAEC staff. Mr Connor had his own advisers and his senior departmental officers. We found that our normal contact people in Canberra did not want to talk to us. They seemed to have been severely discouraged from doing so. As a result, there were developments relating to uranium in Australia, and later, instructions to us which arrived without any prior discussion or consultation with the Commission. For example, the setting up of the joint study with Japan on uranium enrichment, to be done by the Department with assistance from the AAEC, the initial attendance at the Association for Centrifuge Enrichment, and the instructions for involvement in the Northern Territory involving exploration, sales and participation in mining enterprises. To some extent, these new instructions turned the clock back for the Commission, to the emphasis in the original Atomic Energy Act of 1953, which created it, and which gave it sweeping powers to do all things relating to uranium. These powers, giving the government total control over uranium, were a legacy of the military importance of uranium, and they followed the success of the search for the element in Australia which was requested by the British government in 1944. The search led to discoveries of the Rum Jungle, Mary Kathleen and South Alligator region deposits. Before that, the only known deposits were at Mount Painter and Radium Hill in South Australia, which had been worked mainly for radium production. The first of the new resources to be developed was the Rum Jungle Deposit, done under contract for the AAEC by Territory Enterprises Limited, a subsidiary of CRA, and financed by the customer, the Combined Development Agency, CDA, a joint UK-USA enterprise. This appears to have been the only AAEC-controlled uranium activity which was not subjected to on-off decisions by subsequent governments. It led to some considerable environmental problems, the worst of which had little to do with uranium, having been caused by a heap leaching project run as a bonus byproduct by the contractor to recover copper. However, by today's standards, the Rum Jungle project is judged as environmentally very poor. There were leakages from the Tailings Dam, pollution of the river, and totally inadequate cleanup operations at termination of the project but the same can be said for a large number of mining projects of the 1940s and 1950s. Standards have changed, public awareness is high, the regulatory system has advanced so that mines are forced to be protective of their environment, whether they like it or not, and most companies now want to be seen to be environmentally responsible. As I said in Chapter 1, hindsight is ever with us, but it does not help to review projects of the 1940s to 1950s in the light of the knowledge and attitudes of the 90s, and we have a responsibility to record history as it really happened, not as we'd like to think it happened. That's why this story came to be written in the first place. 
After contracts for sale of the product from Rum Jungle to the combined development agency were completed, the commission decided to continue operations and process the balance of the good ore on and near the mill, putting the product into a stockpile for future sale. After closure of the Rum Jungle plant, the stockpile of yellow cake, some 2,200 tonnes of crude uranium oxide, was moved to Lucas Heights for safe storage. It was held there despite attempts by Rex Connor and his advisers to make the commission sell it to raise funds to buy into Mary Kathleen and finance the development of the ranger deposits in the Northern Territory. I for one strongly resisted the proposal to sell, and I obtained an informal opinion from the Attorney General's Department on the ownership of the stockpile and whether the commission had the right to sell it. The answer, opinion only, was that it belonged to the Commonwealth and no, the AAEC could not sell it. My reason for resisting the sale of the stockpile was that I believed it would be needed for loans of material to ensure deliveries on time by the new Australian mines, particularly Queensland mines and Ranger Uranium mines, now Energy Resources of Australia Limited, which would be late in getting into production. Both companies had contracts approved by the Minister for National Development of the previous Liberal government, Mr David Fairbairn. The reasons for the expected delays were the legislation being prepared on a number of matters which would affect the start of mining in the Northern Territory. For example, there were major bills relating to Aboriginal land rights, national parks and environmental controls. In the case of Ranger, the setting up of the Ranger Uranium Environmental Inquiry under Mr Justice Fox caused extra delay. The inquiry was announced in July 1975 and took place from September 1975 until February 1977. Fortunately, the proposal to sell the stockpile was defeated and later it was invaluable for loan to the miners. Otherwise, Australia's reputation for fulfilling contracts would have had a very bad start. I might add that those of us in the AAEC who opposed the sale received no thanks at all from the minister or the public servants involved, certainly not at the time, and not even later when we were shown to have been right. The first shipment from the Commonwealth stockpile was made in June 1977, and by early 1980 about 2,000 short tonnes had been supplied on loan to meet delivery schedules for Energy Resources of Australia and Queensland Mines. Very little of the stockpile was actually used by the Commission itself, probably less than one drumful for laboratory work. It is interesting in retrospect that the market value of the stockpile when it first moved to Lucas Heights was more than the total capital cost of the research establishment to that date. At the time of the Minister's instructions in June 1975, the AAEC did not have facilities or staff to undertake uranium exploration or sales. There was no urgency about the selling because initial production had been committed already by the companies under the previous government, but exploration was another matter. The Minister pressed the Commission very hard to get started on the exploration. This is an understatement. I can recall commission meetings at which his Secretary of the Department of Minerals and Energy, Sir Lennox Hewitt, gave my colleague Bob Griffiths a severe tongue lashing because there were not yet enough field parties out there actively prospecting. We had to start from scratch, and as a matter of highest priority, recruit staff and buy equipment. We decided to establish a new branch of the commission service, the Uranium Branch, 
and Bob Griffiths was appointed head of it. The branch consisted of an exploration division and a production division. The headquarters was housed in the mascot offices we had established for the Jarvis Bay project and subsequently used to house the regulatory and licensing section and our long-term planning section under Grant Miles. And we bought and equipped premises in Alice Springs and Darwin, while at the same time recruiting geologists, geophysicists, mining engineers and an exploration manager, Mr. G.C. Gordon Beatty, also to be head of the exploration division. By the end of September 1975, we had an exploration program in full swing, with three well-equipped and staffed parties in the field. In total, we had 34 professional officers recruited for the new uranium branch, and we spent more than $3 million setting up and operating it in 1975 to 1976. We also began to participate in the development of uranium mining by buying part of Mary Kathleen Uranium and by joining with Pico Walsand and the Electrolytic Zinc Company, EZ, in the Ranger project. The arrangements for that were complex and involved a lot of paperwork in Canberra, drawing up contracts and memoranda of understanding between the government and the companies. One of our problems was finding the money to do all this. We did not get it from our usual source, the Commonwealth Treasury, from which we drew our annual budget appropriation. No, the Minister's instructions were quite specific. Borrow it. So we did. Andrew Thomas and I had to engage financial advisors on contract, and with their help and advice, go to the city and borrow I forget exactly how much, but well over $100 million, mainly for our contribution to the Ranger Uranium project. We both felt a bit like babes in the woods, I must say, but we managed it. By late 1975, we were heavily involved in the uranium industry as per the Minister's instructions. The Commission was a major partner with Pico Walsend and EZ in the Ranger Uranium Mine and was to supply 72.5% of the capital and receive 50% of the proceeds. It also held 41.6% of the shares in Mary Kathleen Uranium and was involved in a joint venture in the Nagalia Basin region of the Northern Territory. During the design and construction phase of the Ranger Mine, the Commission participated actively in the senior management of the enterprise. There were two company and two government members of the board, likewise of the controlling committee set up by the government to oversee the operation. For the AAEC, Andrew Thomas was on the board of the company and I was on the management committee. We both had a lot of paperwork to look after and also spent time at the site near the border of Arnhem Land. On one occasion, the chairman of the commission, then Professor D.W. Don George, arranged its monthly meeting in Darwin so the members could visit the future mine site and the site for the town of Jabiru. We were able to use the services of other commission officers to help with tender assessment and control of capital expenditure as the construction proceeded and some of the AAEC officers joined with company management and representatives of the Attorney General's Department in negotiations with the Aboriginal traditional owners of the land, which reached agreements for payments of royalties and for other conditions covering the mining and milling operations. All of this was to change dramatically when the government changed in November 1975, the dismissal. But there were two other developments under the Connor Ministry which involved the AAEC both related to the possibility of establishing a uranium enrichment industry in Australia. 
One was setting up of a joint study with Japan on the prospects of uranium enrichment in Australia. The other related to the raising of funds for developing such an industry. In the latter stages of the Whitlam government, there arose a major financial scandal, known as the Loans Affair, in which Minister Connor set out to borrow 4,000 million US dollars through a Mr. Kemlani. It led to his demise as minister, but before that we had been informed in writing by the minister that the funds were to be used for development of the Australian uranium industry. This decision followed discussions which he had had with Japanese officials regarding uranium enrichment, in accordance with the agreed arrangements made between the Prime Minister, Mr Gough Whitlam, and the Prime Minister of Japan, when the latter visited Australia in 1974. He had also had discussions with officials of the European Economic Community in regard to the supply of uranium and uranium enrichment facilities in Australia. From these discussions, the minister had concluded that firstly, the developed countries did not have the supplies of yellowcake necessary to fulfil their energy needs and commitments in the period ahead, and secondly, that the developed industrial countries must cooperate in the establishment of uranium enrichment facilities in Australia. For this, he said, Australia required access to immense amount of non-equity capital from overseas. The minister's letter included specific details of the conditions of the proposed loan, and his belief that the amount should be borrowed by the Australian Atomic Energy Commission. He then expressed his view that the commission should seek the immediate consent of the treasurer for a borrowing, in accordance with the details he had given. This matter caused serious worry to Bill Boswell as chairman, and the other commissioners, including to me in particular, because I would be the commissioner responsible for this enterprise. Therefore, we carefully documented all details of the proposal as being at the direction of the minister, and noted formally that the terms and other aspects of the offer by overseas lenders were the subject of investigation and negotiation by the government itself and did not involve the commission directly. The Commission went on to recommend formally to the Minister that he should seek the consent of the Treasurer, on its behalf, for the borrowings described in his letter. We were not involved in the Kemlani episode, but we felt it prudent to cover our backs. It is possible that Rex Connor's drive for development of the uranium industry, and particularly enrichment in Australia, originated at a symposium held in Canberra in June 1972. The symposium was held by the Australian Academy of Science on the role of nuclear energy in Australia's development. I presented a paper with Grant Miles as co-author on enrichment of uranium in which we described the various methods and discussed the possibilities of an Australian enrichment industry in very general terms. In the discussion period after the presentation, I was quizzed from the floor in some detail by Mr Connor, soon to be the Minister for Minerals and Energy, and Grant subsequently had a long discussion with him. He was obviously very interested in the whole subject of the processing of uranium. However, we found it difficult to follow the evolution of his ideas on uranium development, largely because we were excluded from the discussions between he and his advisers. Thus, through the first year of the Whitlam government, we did not know what was being planned in Canberra, but it was obvious that our advice was not required. Our chairman at the time, Bill Boswell, provided to the minister that the AAEC should establish an office in Canberra staffed in rotation by people who would be available to him as advisers. 
but that idea was stamped on very smartly. The setting up of the joint study with Japan was typical of the lack of consultation at the time. We really became aware only through the back door of the minister's plans for this study, but we had no part in arranging it and we did not know any details or the terms of reference. End of chapter 14